Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. All right, this week on the show, we are going to be sharing two of our very favorite interviews from 2021. It's that time of year. We start to take a look back and take stock, things like that. First up, our interview with the writer Ashley C. Ford about her celebrated debut book. It's the memoir, Somebody's Daughter, which was named one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of the Year. Uh, Then speaking of rave reviews, we're also going to chat with the writer and vlogger John Green about his collection of essays, The Anthropocene Reviewed, in which he reviews various things in the world, like uh, Diet Dr. Pepper or academic decathlons, and then he gives them a one to five star rating. I'll tell you what's definitely going to get a five star rating, today's edition of Livewire. So don't go anywhere. It gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Obviously, it's the most wonderful time of the year, as Mm -hmm. they say in the songs, but it's also in the Northwest, where we both live, a very dark time of the year. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, feels like right when it started to get light out, it's now starting to get dark again. But that brings me to this week's edition of Station Location identification examination. Are you ready to play? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) This is where I give you a city or place where Livewire is on the air, and you try to guess the place that I'm talking about. On the winter solstice, this city receives three hours and 43 minutes of daylight. Fairbanks, Alaska. Wow, my goodness (laughs) gracious. I didn't have to give you any of the other identifying information, which I was excited to mention. It's the northernmost city in the United States, right? You're right, and it's also where we're on the air on KUAC in Fairbanks. Yes, shout out. That's the other reason I know is because I, um, I was supposed to travel there this year and give a reading, but of course it got COVIDed, but I got to meet everybody that studies at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks on Zoom, and they told mm-hmm. me how dark <laughs> like, it was. Like their conversation starter was, and they don't mind. Like they're kind of happy people about it. And there's there's northern lights up there, so what you lose in daylight, you get in northern lights. This is my favorite detail about Fairbanks. Apparently, lamprey eels fell from the sky four times in the same week in Fairbanks in 2015. What? 
That has the makings for an entire book by you, Elena. They did not mention that when they when I was a campus guest. <laughs> That's not their icebreaker? No, there was more about the darkness than the lamprey eels. Like, how's it going? It's been a good day. We had zero lamprey eels falling from the sky today. Was there just a plane flying over Fairbanks that kept on accidentally dropping its stock of lamprey eels that it was transporting? Like, how? I they... don't have any follow-up information on this. <laughs> you never do. <laughs> I'll just leave it to the listeners to go on the internet and solve this mystery for themselves. Holy but it's apparently cannoli. associated with Fairbanks. All right. Should we get rolling with this episode of Livewire? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, writers Ashley C. Ford. It is so hard to find a story about an incarcerated person that focuses in any way on the family. And John Green. I realized that I just didn't want to write in code anymore. I wanted to try to write directly about myself and and, and really kind of for myself. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Lou Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country. Uh, We have a bit of a special show this week. This is the time of year where we're kind of taking stock of the year that was and looking forward to, to the new year that we're entering. And we are going to revisit a couple of our very favorite conversations from the last year, including a conversation with the writer Ashley C. Ford, who I know... You you follow on social media, Elena. You're a keen observer. I'm a fan. Of Ashley C. Ford's world. Yeah, she's great, um, and she's so great on social media. And she's also an alumna of a school that I love, Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, which has just a great creative writing program and faculty. Mm-hmm. And apparently, this uh, fall she was their writer in residence, so she got to come back with this. Oprah stamped, huge book. She gave all this time back to the school and she gave readings and she talked with students and there are all these pictures on social media of her with her professors and they're so crazy proud of her, rightfully so. It's just been so fun to watch. We had Ashley on Livewire to talk about her first book, Somebody's Daughter, which is a memoir. It was a huge hit, instant bestseller and uh, got shouted out by Oprah, was uh, on the New York Times 100 Most Notable Books of the Year list. It was also called a heart-wrenching yet equally witty and wondrous story by the New York Times. Um, A heads up also before we get into this conversation, uh, there are some parts of this interview where we talk about rape and sexual assault, uh, so it might not be suitable for all listeners, but with that uh, being uh, mentioned, take a listen to this. It is our conversation with Ashley C. Ford on Livewire, recorded back in June of this year. Ashley C. Ford, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. We are really excited that you were able to make time for the show. I know you're super busy because this book is already a giant hit, as well it should be. It's doing well, guys. It's really (laughs) doing well. (laughs) Let's um, let's kind of start a little bit at the beginning of your story. Um, You write a lot about your relationship with your mom, which is Mm -hmm. complicated. Um, And also a lot of this book is about your relationship with your father, which was also complicated because he was incarcerated when you were very young. What kind of role did he play in your mind? What sort of space did your father take up in your life as a kid when he was not physically there? 
You know, I've read something recently that said we are hardest on the parent who stayed or mm -hmm. the parent who stuck mm -hmm. around, um, which is absolutely true yep. uh, for me as a kid. And that, I think, was added to or it was, uh, I guess, uh, bonded by the fact that my mom... My mom's way of like saying I love you and I care about you and stuff like that was just, you know, working really hard and paying the bills and making sure things Showing were up. taken care of. And it's not that she never said I love you. It's just that my mom has such an allergy to vulnerability that her way of saying I love you was to be like, look at me. I love you. Okay. <laughs> Don't let anybody ever say I didn't love you. Don't let don't ever get it in your head that I don't love you. I do. And you would be like, oh, OK, like, it was very <laughs> aggressive. But it was also like that was her way of being like, it just occurred to me that I really need you to understand that I love you and that maybe I don't say that enough. And maybe I don't uh, maybe I'm not tender enough or things like that. So I would be like, OK. And, you know, you just kind of accept her as she is. But my father wrote me these letters that were full of this florid language about the way he saw me and the way he thought of me and how much he thought of me and how much he loved me. And he didn't get the opportunity to be around so much that he made the regular dad mistakes or the regular mm -hmm. parent mistakes that anybody would and most likely will make. Um, so my relationship with him it was real in that like he was out there and I was here and we knew of each other and we loved each other, but it was unreal in that all the gaps that were filled in about who he was were filled in by my child imagination. Mm. And that only lasts for so long. <laughs> Childhood <laughs> is only here for so long. So eventually it had to change. Yeah, and as you write in the book, uh, a big shift in how you regarded him was when you found out what he had actually gone to jail for, mm -hmm. uh, which was rape and, and sexual assault, which was also mm -hmm. something that you had suffered through yourself yes. just before getting that information. What was it like for you when, you when you realized why he was actually in jail, based also on your personal experience? It was earth and identity shattering. We have so many ways that we think about love and that we think about the people that we love. And most of that is pretty uncomplicated on the surface. Most of it, you know, it might hurt, it might not last, all of those things, but it's all just a lot of like confusion and, and affirmation and, and trying to figure it out. When somebody does something like rape, like sexual assault. At the time, it was my belief that I was supposed to be able to shut off every positive thing I felt about him. You should never read another letter. You should never take another phone call. You should never think of him in that way again in a positive way, in a way that like my dad loves me. Because how can a person who loves you do something like this to someone else? And what does that mean about you? I thought it meant something about me. Mm -hmm. 
What does it mean that the person who seems to love me most in the entire world is a person who could do something like that? And so it was all wrapped up for a while. I was convinced that what had happened to me happened because of what my dad had done. I thought, you know, growing up in the church and stuff like that and the sins of the father are revisited upon the child. It made sense to me that what had happened to me might be a payment in some kind, a punishment in some kind for what my father had done. And it took me a really long time to accept and understand that my love for my father was not condoning what he had done. It was not forgiveness for what he had done. I didn't think that was my place to forgive him for something he did to other people. I never, I would never, I would never try to do that because I, if someone tried to forgive my rapist for me, the anger that I would feel at that would be insurmountable. But I do not want to deny that there is a human there and a relationship. And it is a love that I choose because it exists. I could deny it. I could absolutely deny it. I could say like, yeah, I love you, but don't want anything to do with you ever for the rest of my life. Um, but that would be denying myself what I want. Yeah. And I don't think I need to be punished. I don't need to deprive myself because of someone else's decisions. Like, yeah, you did this and you still have to be my dad. I'm going to make you figure out how to be my father. This is Livewire from PRX. We are talking to Ashley C. Ford about her memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Uh, We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We've got much more with Ashley coming up in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're Mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. 
Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to Ashley C. Ford about her memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Um, I've been following your work for a while now, and I find it so interesting uh, that this is the book that you put out, because I think if someone asked me, what do you know about Ashley C. Ford? Before this book, I would say, so funny, so smart, just like so outgoing. You could have, I feel like, written a hit memoir that was like heavy on the pop culture. You know, you didn't have to go here with this book. I'm wondering why it is that you chose to go here. I needed somebody to go there for me. Mm. Mm. When I was a kid, I'm a reader. I'm a big reader, always have been. You don't think I searched for my story in everything I ever read? Every single thing I read, I looked for myself and I looked for my story. It is so hard to find a story about an incarcerated person that focuses in any way on the family that is left behind when that person is incarcerated. You almost never read about that. You almost never hear stories about that because people don't really care about us. We're collateral damage. Like that's what the families of the incarcerated are. People mm. feel like they are punishing the incarcerated person through us. That's why it's so hard to maintain a relationship with a person who is incarcerated. It's not just the, the isolation. It's not just the distance. It's how much phone calls cost. Right. It's how much emails cost. It's how much it costs to put money on someone's books. It's how long it takes to get to a prison. Knowing that when you get there, you still might not, you have, might have to wait half a day and you still might not be able to mm -hmm. see the person that you came to see. Mm -hmm. Bringing kids into that environment is terrible. Like it's terrifying for them. And as much as the incarcerated person might want to see their children, there are a lot of incarcerated people who are like, please don't ever bring my child into this building. As much as I love them, please don't bring them here. And that separation from their relationships and from their humanity is no, and it does not help the rehabilitation process for most people. So when I, when I decided to write this book and when I decided to write the book this way, I knew that there would be people who would be like, huh, interesting <laughs> book for Ashley to write because normally she's just making me laugh or she's doing something that I'm like, oh, that's cool or fun. And that is who I am. That mm -hmm. is absolutely who I am. Everything in this book is also who I am. And I carry every piece of it with me every day. So if I'm going to write you a memoir, if I'm going to tell you about who I am, I'm not going to tell you what you can probably figure out by having followed me on Twitter for two years. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you who I am. And I'm going to do that because I needed it and somebody else out there needs it. Lots of people need it. And lots of people need to feel empowered to tell their stories exactly as they are. This is Livewire Radio. We are talking to Ashley C. Ford. Her new memoir is Somebody's Daughter. Have uh, either of your parents read the book yet? No, actually. Um, all three of my siblings have. Um, after it came out. They all waited until oh. after it came out to read it. And I got messages from all three of them this week that... Whew, whew, sorry. <laughs> sorry. 
I got messages from all three of them this week about um, how much they loved it and how much they love me mm. and how they feel like they see me more clearly. And that, you know, both of my brothers were like, you know, it just makes me want to hold you. Oh. It just makes me want to hug you so hard. And, you know, my, my brother that's closest in age to me that, you know, so much of this we went through together. He said, you know, this filled in so many pieces for me when I felt alone and when I felt like nobody was hearing me or talking to me about what was going on around us. And I just really wish that I had, I had been less afraid and I had said more to you about how I was feeling. And it was just this moment where I finally got to, you know, have that conversation with my brother, you know, and say, who would have taught us? Who would have shown us how to have that conversation? How would we have known? There's no way that we would have known how to have that conversation with one another. And so we can have that conversation now and we can talk about it now. And that's good enough for me. I don't ever want you to feel regret. I don't ever want you to feel like you failed me in some way. You have not. You've loved me the whole way through it. And that's all I needed. So that's been fantastic. My dad would like me to hand it to him myself. So I have, I had to wait till his vaccine was fully marinated and I get, <laughs> <laughs> and I get through this, um, promotional phase, this promotional <laughs> junkets and yeah. The junkets, and then I can drive up to Fort Wayne and hand it to him myself. My mother um, will probably never read it. Um, she's just the kind of person that if there's something she doesn't want to know, she's like, I'm not going to look in there. <laughs> Is that a slight relief to you, or or do you wish that she could read this and, and really understand some things about your experience that maybe she doesn't understand? At this point, it's neither. I have accepted who my mother is. I love her just as she is. And because I love her, I trust her to take care of herself. So the truth is, I have always been kind of like, there is a chance she'll read it. And I'm, I'm, I have to prepare myself for that. Um, would I like her to? I'm not sure. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm actually not mm -hmm. sure if I would like her to, but I know that I don't need her to. And I know that if she does, I'm, I'm ready and willing to have a conversation after. Uh, a person that we know has read the book and really appreciated <laughs> it is Oprah Winfrey, because I saw her tweeting about it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I know that I, oh, yeah. I know you're gonna you're gonna do an interview with her in a few days. Uh, I mean, have you like are you even able to process the fact that like you and Oprah are sort of friends now, and that she really admires your work? Like, how does one even take in that information? Gail is Oprah's friend. I <laughs> am some chick who wrote a book uh, <laughs> that she happens to like. I mean, look. I, at some point, Gail and Oprah weren't friends yet, so maybe That's you're just true. in the you're in the before like 50 phase. Years ago, <laughs> maybe so, maybe so, maybe this is the moment. Um, but I, I'm so excited. I'm I'm not really nervous. I don't. 
I don't really get nervous about these kinds of things. I, I get excited and then sometimes I get nervous about my excitement mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm always worried that excitement leads to disappointment. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I am excited. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to talk with her. You know, Oprah, and I, she, I don't know, there's no way she would know this, but she has been this like I, I know like a national figure like everybody has like a, an Oprah moment I think of like Oprah said this thing that really helped me mm-hmm. or I read this book that Oprah suggested and it was great you know everybody mm-hmm. I think has been a little bit touched in some way by Oprah Winfrey um but I was convinced for years that there was something about Oprah's trajectory in her life and mine that were like lining up. (laughs) (laughs) She launched OWN at the same time that I was at like one of the worst places in my life. I was about to be homeless. I ended up moving in with this family that I had nannied for. I was like feeling super emotional about the fact that I'm living in these people's like house. And as much as I love them and care for them, I feel like a burden and why can't I get my stuff together? And all of a sudden it's like, own launches. And I'm like, well, you know what? Let me turn on some own. And I turn it on. (laughs) (laughs) And it's Oprah and she's doing this masterclass. And in that masterclass, she's talking about her life. And this is a way that I've never heard about Oprah's life before. I didn't know about her as a child. I didn't know about things that had happened to her. I didn't know about how much she had overcome to become Oprah, how much she had accepted about herself in order to become Oprah. And I watched it and I was just thinking like, is this for me? Like, (laughs) Like I was sitting there and I think when you're really low and you are open to things like signs, Uh like, uh, it's easy for anything positive to start looking like a sign. And in that moment, I was just like, this is a sign like things are going to be okay. I'm going to I'm going to get better. I'm going to figure this out. And I mean, like a week later, I had my first publication. Like I broke up with the guy who broke up with me first in a poem that ended with and you can go to hell, Ashley Ford. Um, what rhymes with that? Nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing. What rhymes with that? terrible boyfriend. That's what rhymes with that. Um, and I, and you know, I just started figuring it out. And so like, uh, I, it, it, it's a, it's a full circle moment for me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's amazing. Like you clearly identified something going on kind of cosmically in that mm. moment with you and Oprah. And I mean, are you, are you already trying to like decide if you're going to bring that up with her or not when you have the conversation? Of course. Of course, because it's like it's like everybody who meets her is probably like, Oprah, you know, one time. Yes. This mm-hmm. happened. You know, like that. Yeah. That is probably every single person who meets her. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, I don't think my story is going to be that much more special than anybody else's, except for the fact that, you know, Several years later, you decided you liked my book enough to put your name on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's the difference. And it does sometimes feel like magic. And it does sometimes feel like the cosmos, like, conspiring in my favor. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really just like, I think she sees in my story something real and true that is probably reminded her of her story, but also reminded her of more and more girl stories that she's encountered. You know, she's a story lover, so I'm glad she loves my story. 
That makes me feel really good. But, you know, it's it's Oprah. It's <laughs> Oprah. So it does, if she hated my story and talked about it, I would still sell more books. And, <laughs> <laughs> and because she loves it and because she has been so kind to me, this experience of being a debut author for me has been unlike anybody else I've ever known. And how do you say thank you to somebody for that? How do you say thank you for making my experience one that nobody else gets? Thank you. Whoa. Wow. We are honored to be the second most exciting interview that you do this week <laughs> about the book. We're just going to claim the second place spot. And we're going to give the top one to Oprah. Silver medal. I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> okay, Silver cool. Metal. We'll take it. Thank you very much for coming on Livewire. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. This is an amazing conversation. I appreciate you both. That was Ashley C. Ford right here on Livewire talking about her memoir, Somebody's Daughter, which is available now. Hey, special thanks this week to Kipling Reynolds of Washington, D.C. Kipling is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is um, super important to doing the show because without support like the uh, donation that we're getting from Kipling, we wouldn't be here. So thank you, Kipling, for keeping Livewire going. You're listening to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're playing a couple of our very favorite interviews from 2021, including this chat with our next guest, a New York Times bestselling author of six books, including the YA smash hit, The Fault in Our Stars. He also wrote Turtles All the Way Down. His latest uh, book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, which is based on a podcast that he does of the same name, uh, reviews various aspects of our existence as humans on a five-star scale. So things like whispering, he rates that, how that's going with whispering, one to five stars. Also, something called the yips, oh. which if you are a baseball fan like I am, you're very familiar with players who've developed the yips. Uh, it's a really amazing podcast, and now it's an incredible book as well. So take a listen to this. It's our interview with John Green, recorded in May of last year. Let's welcome John Green to Livewire. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I've been a fan of your various projects for a long time now. I'm really excited to to talk about this new book, but I would like to start at... Uh, <laughs> Maybe the part that's only interesting to me, which is I got the review copy of this book and I noticed that you had signed it. And I thought, well, you know, I'm a fairly well-known radio host. I probably, John was just trying to make a good impression. <laughs> and then I learned that, in fact, you autographed all 250,000 of the first printing of this book. Yeah. How do the mechanics of that even work? Well, um, you, you sign them one at a time, and okay. then uh, <laughs> if you spend 500 hours doing that, at the end, you've signed 250,000 copies. But So the way that it works is you sign an, in, an individual sheet, 
and then you pack up all 250,000 sheets and I sent them to the printer in Virginia and then they have a machine that shoots one signed page into each book as it's being bound. So it is true that I signed that book for you because you are a fancy radio host, but it mm -hmm. is also true that there are literally no unsigned copies of the Anthropocene Reviewed book. Yeah, you point out, I think, in, in one of the ads for the book that if someone happens to get an unsigned copy of the Anthropocene Reviewed, that will actually be more of a collector's item at this point. Very rare, very <laughs> rare indeed. All right, now that we have that out of the way, can you, for folks that may be unfamiliar with the term, can you uh, kind of explain what Anthropocene actually means? Yeah, I probably should have chosen a title for this book that was e either easy to spell or easy to pronounce or that, you know, had a, had a settled definition, but there's there's no looking back now. The Anthropocene is a, it's a proposed term for our current geologic age in which humans have become not just like the dominant species on the planet, but but a geologically significant phenomenon with our, you know, tremendous interventions into the landscape, reshaping the planet's biodiversity and so on. And I took that as my starting point because I wanted to write a, a very personal book, but I also wanted to write a book about how weird it is to live in this historical moment when we are at once hugely powerful as a species, unprecedentedly powerful, but at the same time, like not nearly powerful enough. So together, we're doing all of this stuff that's having a huge impact on the entire planet and on every living being on the planet. But then like as an individual, I can't even like convince my children to eat breakfast. And this this tension between the power that we have and, and our absolute powerlessness, I mean, we've seen uh, our communities be brought to their knees by a single strand of RNA. Mm -hmm is really interesting to me and I think reflective of this strange moment when we are both, you know, capable of tremendous change together, but sometimes like not capable of choosing exactly how we change things. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you, you give an example. We are capable of heating the earth up, yeah. but not capable of stopping heating right. the earth up. Exactly. Down. Yeah, I wish we were a little bit better at choosing how we reshape the climate instead of just being really good at reshaping the climate, which we are incredibly good at. It's been a very long time since an organism did such a good job of shaping the climate. But yeah, we're not doing a good job of choosing how to shape it. Uh, you've written some really successful books of fiction, Turtles All the Way Down and The Fault in Our Stars. Uh, in this book, though, you say that talking about yourself in the context of fiction had become exhausting. What did you mean by that? Well, when I'm writing a novel, I'm not really writing about or even for myself. I'm, I'm writing, I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be someone else. And and th th that's its own creative enterprise. But then often when you get asked like in interviews and stuff to talk about the book, they always want you to do it in the context of yourself, which I totally understand. Like I enjoy listening to interviews and the parts of interviews that are good are not the parts where the author is like carefully delineating the difference between the novel and the author or whatever. <laughs> it's the part where like the author is bearing their soul. And so mm -hmm. I, I totally get it. But for me, it, it had started to feel almost like you know, fiction is written in code, and I'm the only person who who knows the code, knows the relationship between myself and the story. And it had started to feel like other people thought they knew that code. And I just found the whole process of trying to navigate that, like in both The Fault in Our Stars and Turtles All the Way Down, I was trying to navigate that. I was aware of the fact that people were going to read me into the story, and I was trying to think about how to deal with it. 
And then after Turtles All the Way Down came out, I had sort of a serious health scare. And when I was recovering from that, I realized that I just didn't want to write in code anymore. I wanted to try to write directly about myself and 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 really kind of for myself, not least because I needed to write my way back into hope, mm. hope that the species is worthwhile, hope that my life can be worthwhile. And I wanted to remind myself of the, you know, the importance of connection between people, the importance, the, the incredible human capacity for wonder, for awe, for joy, all of that stuff I'd become pretty distant from. And so I wrote this book for, for me, which was a big departure. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're talking to John Green about his new book, The Anthropocene Reviewed. He also has a great podcast of the same name. And the conceit of the podcast and also this book is is rating things on a, a kind of one to five star scale. What I think is interesting is you also write that those rating systems are pretty ineffective, you think. I mean, when you were writing book reviews, you said that the review itself was much more useful to the person who might read the book than just some kind of weird listing of stars. And yet you're using it as a conceit for all of this. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the five-star scale is that it's ridiculous, but it's also in indispensable, which <laughs> is a lot like a lot of things in our current age. Like, yeah, I used to write 175-word book reviews for a living, and I didn't need to put a star review at the end of it because you could figure out whether the book was good from the review, hopefully. But the star system doesn't exist for humans. It exists for these data aggregation systems that are trying to use single data points to figure out the quality of a restaurant or a barbershop, or now like increasingly absurd things, like there are thousands of reviews of national parks. And one of the things that actually spurred this book in the first place was my brother and I were on tour in 2017, and we were driving through Badlands National Park, and we would read back and forth to each other the one-star Google reviews of Badlands <laughs> National Park. And they were just so absurd. Like one one one-star one review read in its entirety, not enough mountain. And like, <laughs> I don't think you can hold a national park responsible for not having mountains. I don't think that's the national park's fault. If you wanted mountains, there are a number of national parks you could have visited. Right. And so I wanted to kind of capture the and point out the silliness and the absurdity of the five-star scale while also being like fairly earnest in my attempts to figure mm -hmm. out what I do think about something on the whole. That's what I was wondering is how seriously do you take the, the rating that you're going to give something, let's say it's Diet Dr. Pepper. I mean, not that seriously. For instance, I can't tell you for sure what the rating of Diet Dr. Pepper in the book is. <laughs> well, you are a fan. Oh, yeah. I do love it. That's an amazing story. <laughs> the Diet Dr. Pepper essay was actually the very first one I wrote. And I, I kind of tried to write it as like an objective expert, you know, sort of a Malcolm Gladwell type, like looking down from on high at the world of Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and it is a fascinating story. I mean, it's a, like most sodas, it was invented by a pharmacist and it was sort of a drug, you know, like all those early uh, sodas were sort of, a, and kind of still are, like with all yeah. the sugar and caffeine. And so I was writing this story and, and then I showed it to my wife, Sarah, and she said, you know, this is nice and it's funny and everything, but like you have written 1500 words about Diet Dr. Pepper and not mentioned that you personally love Diet Dr. Pepper. 
And there is no like disinterested observer in this story or in any mm. story. Like everybody comes at something with a perspective. And Sarah helping me to understand that was really critical to the book that I eventually wrote. You know, you say something at the end of that piece about Diet Dr. Pepper that I don't have it right in front of me, but it was a it was talking about vices. Yeah. And 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 how well, first of all, you know, Diet Dr. Pepper is a vice for you maybe now that you don't smoke cigarettes or whatever. But the specific part that really struck me was talking about how we sort of um, the excitement around knowing that you're doing something that's bad for you is really yeah. part of the thrill of a vice. And as a person who is riddled with vice <laughs> myself, I'd never thought of it that way. Uh, that really changed my perspective. Yeah, I, I think I smoked cigarettes compulsively for a long time and I would often think about why am I doing this? You know, like it's one thing to smoke five or 10 cigarettes a day, but when you're smoking 40 or 50 cigarettes a day, it's about something other than nicotine. And I think for me, it was about the, you know, for whatever reason, I've always felt this urge to self-destruct in, 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 in some way. You know, it, it goes back to adolescence for me. I've, I've always struggled against self-destructive urges and the pleasure in smoking for me was in giving in to this, mm -hmm. you know, this this compulsive need. Um, and I don't smoke anymore. I don't I don't drink to excess. Um, but God, I love Diet Dr Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to John Green here on the Live Wire House Party. Uh, his new book is The Anthropocene Reviewed. Uh, he's also got a podcast of the of the same name. The chapter of this book on the yips jumped out at me because I'm a baseball fan and I've always been really fascinated with this phenomenon. For people that yeah. are unfamiliar, can you kind of describe what the yips are? Sure. I mean, I can describe it through the most famous example. On October 3rd, 2000, one of the best pitchers in baseball was a guy named Rick Ankeel and he was pitching in a playoff game and he threw a wild pitch, something he'd done two or three times that season. And then um, he threw another wild pitch, and then he threw another, and then he threw another, and he never regained his control again. He never became an elite pitcher again after that moment because he had developed the yips, which is a poorly understood, but we think it's mostly a physiological problem that is an actual sort of dystonia in the muscles. And so when he would throw, he would feel this little focal dystonia that would affect his control. And that's such a fascinating word in the context of baseball. We hear that all the time about pitchers, like this guy has amazing control. And you know, control is what we all want on some level, not just pitchers, but all of us. And to lose that all in one moment and to never be able to get it back is not just a threat to your livelihood. If you're a professional athlete, it's also a threat to your identity. I mean, Rick Ankeel had never been anything but an elite pitcher from the time he was eight or nine years old. He was, you know, he defined himself primarily as a baseball player. And to have that taken away all at once is such a difficult thing. But the beautiful astonishing part of Rick Ankiel's story, and this is also true for Anna Ivanovich, another athlete who experienced the yips who I write about in the book. The, the amazing thing about their stories is that even though they never recovered the ability to do the thing that the yips took away from them, they were able to completely rebuild themselves and rebuild their game so that they can again become elite athletes. Like the last time a major league pitcher won 10 games and hit 50 home runs was Babe Ruth. 
until Rick Angheel, who dropped all the way down to the bottom of the major leagues, worked his way back up as a hitter, and then had a second really successful career as a hitter, and replaced Babe Ruth as the most recent person to win 10 games as a pitcher and hit 50 home runs. And for me, that story is so much about what I love about humans. Like we do not know when we are licked, we keep going, we persevere. And I just, I love that about us. Yeah. I also really like, John, that for what a obviously smart person you are and how much important information you have, you also love sports. <laughs> Which I feel like those Venn diagrams don't always overlap because sports are meaningless. What do you quote uh, Pope John Paul as saying about about, uh, football? He says about uh, world football, to be clear, what we call soccer. He said, well, actually, I'm not sure that he said this, but it's one of those things that like he might have said, you know, so full disclosure, he might not have said it. But it's a great line regardless of all the unimportant things. Football is the most important Right. And that is what I think about sports. Like, they don't matter, but the whole reason they matter is because they don't matter. You know, like, I I feel like life, it's to some extent about what you love, but it's also about how you love it. Like, there are people who love sports in a way that doesn't connect with me at all. And then there are people who love fashion the way that I love sports. Or, you know, they they love whatever they love the way that I love sports. And I feel deeply connected to those people because I, I just... I I love someone who can have an unironic enthusiasm, who can feel unapologetic about wanting to engage emotionally with the world. And like what I love about sports deep down is that sports allow me to feel things that as a 43-year-old, I sometimes like struggle to feel in other ways. This is Livewire from PRX. We're talking to John Green about his book, The Anthropocene Reviewed. Uh, We have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere. We've got a lot more with John coming up right after this. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. This week on the show, we're revisiting a couple of our very favorite conversations we had in 2021, including... This chat with the writer John Green talking about his book, The Anthropocene Reviewed. Let's get back into that right now. You know, you you write in the book and you've talked a lot uh, on various shows that you've done about your anxiety and ways that you will have intrusive thoughts later about interactions you've had with people, whether it's fans or whether it's people you're a fan of. I'm curious what it's like for you to do, you know, you're doing a publicity tour for this book. You're going to probably do a hundred of these interviews. Do these interviews generate a lot of possibility for you looking back and feeling not great about how it went? Yes. Uh, yes. This one's no going one's ever... well. I just want to say yeah, for we, the record. We rated five stars. Take so, this yeah. one off the list. John Green, five stars, Live you Warehouse know, Party. Nobody's ever asked me that question before, but it does in a big way. It's really hard for me. And after we finish this, I'll I'll hyperanalyze 
I mean, I think a lot of people do this, but I'll hyperanalyze my answers and I'll feel really unsettled about it. And I'll wish that I'd said something with a little more clarity or a little, you know, a little more carefully. The pleasure of these interviews from a listener's perspective is, is the unguardedness, right? Mm -hmm. It is the openness. It is when the interviewer um, cracks you open a little bit and, and you become your real self and somebody can glimpse that. But that's also kind of what's terrifying about doing it because those are the moments when you're maybe not as careful as you should be or you're maybe not as precise in your language as you want to be or whatever. And so I'm sure I will. But that's to be clear, like that's not your fault. And it's not, it's not even, it's, it's nobody's fault except for the fact that I have OCD. So like, I don't need this to have intrusive thoughts. So like, I, I was gonna, I was gonna have them today anyway. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna have OCD regardless of whether we were doing this interview. And that's part of what I tell myself when I get ready to do something like this is like, well, you had OCD yesterday and it wasn't fun. And it's probably not going to be that fun today, but you're also going to have it tomorrow. So like, just do your best. That makes me wonder, is it a solace to write then? Because the line yes. is polished and that's exactly it. Both genres, the fiction and the nonfiction? It is a solace. And it also, you know, especially when I'm when I'm writing fiction, I it feels like almost like I can escape myself. Almost like I'm not stuck. I mean, one of the big problems with my particular um mental illness is that I really don't like being inside of my body. Like I I, I have a lot of fears about contamination and it's it's horrifying to me that like half the cells inside of my body are not actually mine. They're bacteria colonizing me. <laughs> And so I like writing fiction partly because it feels like an escape. It feels like, oh, I'm not going to imagine what it's like to be me. I'm not going to have to try to think about what it's like to be me because I can imagine being this other person. But I also do like writing because of the precision of it. That said, like the moment something gets finished, like now this book is, is it's, it's out, it's, well, it's real, it's physical, I can't change anything about it, I immediately start to worry um, about, about it. So... I don't know. I, I mean, in the end, like the way to to manage mental illness is to manage it, is to, you know, to or for me anyway, is is to treat it, to take it as seriously as I would any other chronic health problem um, and to understand that it's something that I'm going to live with, but I can still have a good life. But I do I do love the writing parts of writing because um, I get I get to think hard about what I want to say and I get to think hard about what I actually think about something. And for me, writing and reading have always sort of been like the way that I have thoughts. Right. Like I don't know. I don't really have thoughts outside of them. Yeah. Uh, outside of language. Well, maybe this is a related question. How did you keep these runs of thoughts in this book short? Because these essays are this perfect, like right before bed, you can read a couple, but the topics are huge. Like, bacteria or right. <laughs> deep time. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Piggly Wiggly. Honestly, in some ways, the Piggly Wiggly <laughs> one was harder to pare down than writing about like 16 billion years of human history. <laughs> because Piggly Wiggly was like a hugely important thing in American capitalism. But I did cut a lot. So like for me, one of the real joys of writing is like writing too much, having too much, and then trying to pare it down, trying to like see if I can do two things with one sentence, you know, if 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 I can, you know, do I have to make that connection explicit or can it just like live in the in-between spaces? And that's that's one thing I really like about writing. So paring it down and and trying to get it to the sort of shortest length at which it could still be powerful was like 
that's pretty fun for me. Well, you did an incredible job with it because as Elena was saying, I mean, you you address some really weighty topics, but you do it with this real economy and clarity and humanness. I just never knew when I was going to be kind of emotionally <laughs> knocked over by a particular <laughs> chapter or a line. Like just this book really made an impression on me. And the podcast of the same name, The Anthropocene Reviewed is also great. Would recommend both of them. Uh, John Green, thanks for coming on the Livewire House Party. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was John Green right here on Livewire. His book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, is available now. Also, the podcast of the same name is really something. So take a listen to that as well. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking about the power of words. First, with legendary rapper Talib Kweli. Talib Kweli is the guy that Jay-Z raps about when Jay-Z is trying to rap about people who are great at rapping. <laughs> Just if you want to know where Talib Kweli fits into the whole hierarchy of he's things. He's up there. <laughs> he's way up there. He's got a new memoir out as well. Then, speaking of masters of words, George Saunders is going to stop by. He, of course, uh, is a very beloved and um, much awarded writer. His new book, though, I think might be one of his most amazing accomplishments. It's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And what he does is he sort of takes something he's been teaching at the Syracuse uh, writing program for years, these Russian short stories, and he presents them in this book in this way that just really shows storytelling and the craft around that kind of writing in a way that I certainly had never experienced before. So you want to definitely tune in for that. And if all that weren't enough, we've also got some music from Gillette Johnson about the moments when words completely fail you. Because that's also something that happens when you're talking about words and language. So anyway, we've got a great show for you coming up next week. Please do not miss it. As far as this week's show goes, that's going to wrap things up. A huge thanks to our guests, Ashley C. Ford and John Green. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Kipling Reynolds of Washington, D.C. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam. 
you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. <laughs>